I know what you're thinking. Dave, I've just heard way too much of you. I understand, but this was pretty important stuff, and I wanted to get it covered and turned around really quick. So let me paint you a picture. Early Friday morning, me and my family, we get up, we load the car, and we head off to where our church's headquarters and temple is. The beautiful thing about that place is I get very little cell coverage out there, so I can just unplug and visit with friends, and I attended the temple, and then I attended the church on Sunday morning, and then about 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon, we start to drive home. And I was just thinking to myself, man, life is good. I didn't have to answer the phone once, I didn't look at the news, and then I got about 40 miles from home and my phone began to blow up with the news that two banks had collapsed over the weekend. Now if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I've had some very real concerns about the economy and the direction it was headed. And the fact that these two banks collapsed only served to tell me that those fears were very well founded. So as normal, whenever I have questions about the economy, I call Kelsey Williams. Him and I had a conversation about these bank collapses and what they really mean. Stick around for some unfiltered information on the economy that you're not going to get very many other places from a guy way smarter than me on this impromptu episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I want to take just a few moments here and just say thank you for listening. I can never tell you how much it means to me that you spend your time here with me. Now, on top of that, last year I received donations that helped me upgrade the audio, equipment, and software. This year I want to do the same thing for video. Now, if you want to help out and make a donation, you can do that by going to mormonrenegade.com and making a donation there. Also, check out the Mormon Renegade Supply Store at mormonrenegade.com and pick up some merch. Now, if you can't do any of those, I completely understand. It's not like it's been a banner year necessarily for our finances. So maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers. Finally, as I've started to do more video, there's a YouTube channel up for the podcast. But uh, just between you and me, yeah, I ain't going to be there very long because I have a feeling I'm going to get kicked off. So to stay one step ahead of that, I've made a channel on Rumble. So head on over to Rumble, look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel there, and crush that like and subscribe button. Thank you. I have been very careful on this podcast to only advertise for items that I feel will add value and purpose in your life. That said, I've discovered a book that I really believe should be in every Mormon's library. The book is called Beneath Sheep's Clothing. In this book, the author, Julie Beeling, breaks down the communist infiltration into our schools, institutions, and perhaps even most distressing, our churches. The book backs up its claims with well-cited sources, so you can go do the research yourself. This book will allow you to see the communist tactics and gives you the tools on how to combat this insidious movement in America. Julie is right now trying to raise money to make the book into a documentary, and I can't recommend donating to this cause strongly enough. So head over to mormonrenegade.com and you can find the link to buy the book and donate to the documentary in this episode page or scroll down to the very bottom of the landing page at mormonrenegade.com to find a link to buy the book. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Kelsey, 
Kelsey, Kelsey, Kelsey, Kelsey. Do you remember? Do you remember three weeks ago we had that conversation where, and this was off air for everybody listening, but we actually had a conversation where where we were like, well, maybe maybe the laws of economy do stop at the U.S. borders, and then, um, all of a sudden, it was it was on. It it was game on. Um, I was coming home from from Nevada, and I. I didn't get cell coverage all weekend long and it was so nice, right? Just unplug, just, you know, kind of reset spiritually. And I'm probably, I don't know, 30, 45 miles from home. And all of a sudden my phone just starts blowing up and I start looking through my phone and I'm like, Oh crap. I see two banks had failed in just over the weekend. And I'm like, well, I guess it's it's time I give Kelsey a call. So for whoever is listening, it is right now 7:10 in the evening on Monday. Kelsey and I wanted to jump on and get this episode done and out. I plan on on releasing this either tonight or first thing in the morning, but we wanted to get this out there for everybody because on this podcast, I think we've done what, three or four together Kelsey where we've been yeah, kind of This is our fourth one, I think. Yeah, so yeah. so we've done three prior to this where we've been ringing the bell that something's not right. And and I think that this is the first in a set of, oh, I don't want to be too hyperbolic here, but I, I truly believe this, cataclysmic events within the economy. I, I think that's true. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a hesitation by most people to use a term like that because they're afraid of maybe spooking something or uh, uh, and, and part of it's uh, that idea of avoiding something that's distasteful. So let's not talk about it. Maybe the problem will go away. It really is kind of like a dysfunctional family, right? Like if we yeah. just don't talk about it, maybe it goes away. And, yeah. and I, I've heard I've heard of people getting in trouble for quote talking down the economy, right? Yeah. And so I I understand entirely that these are not necessarily happy, fun subjects, but I believe I believe those that know there's a responsibility to ring that bell and let people know not things aren't right. And well, so I yeah. appreciate you have, have, I appreciate you coming on so we can talk about it. You bet. You bet. So um, what, I think what, it's just a matter of being realistic, you know, yeah. we're not, nobody's trying to talk anything down as much as they are say, wait, there are some problems here and you need to be aware of them. Otherwise you will be surprised and it won't be pleasant when it happens. Yeah, and and I, Chelsea, to be honest with you, I, I've gotten a few emails where they say, why are you talking about the economy? It's not really your thing. Well, one, it's my podcast, and I'm kind of interested in economy, so that's one. But the other thing is, is if I feel something's wrong, and I have this platform, and I don't say something, and then people suffer down the road, I'm not sure I could live with myself. And so that's part of the reason I do these episodes. I, th I think what you said is perfectly appropriate. And, uh, you know, I've got a good friend in California who is an attorney. Uh, and uh, he says to me, 
that, that's his term. You know, he tells me, I think you ought to write an article about such and such. And he said, I do it, but I don't have the platform you have. Right. <laughs> he said, you know, this is, is the way it is or something is needs to be said. So go say it. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, that's all it is. You know? All right. So let's let's dive in here. What happened on Friday? Okay, um, there were actually three bank failures since the middle of last week. Three, um, three. I thought uh, it was well, just two over the weekend. Well, there's a firm, uh, a Silvergate, uh, which is uh, associated with the crypto sector, and it was fallout from FTX, okay. ext- you know, and all of that. Uh, and so then. Um, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, people call it, um, uh, was announced. And then over the weekend, another bank was Signature Bank in New York, which now the the thing about these is the uh, Silvergate and uh, Signature Bank are both associated with crypto, digital currencies. So that was definitely a factor. It was fallout from that. The uh, Silicon Valley Bank, um, you have the technology-based companies and venture capitalists, big venture capitalists. So that, uh, you know, the type of uh, customer, the investments, everything, those are factors here. But there's two main factors as far as SVB and all banks are concerned. And that was definitely apparent in what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. One is the fractional reserve banking system. And the other is interest rates. And those are the two key things that happened. Now they, they closed the bank they made arrangements to work directly since they haven't found a, someone to buy the assets and take over things yet. Um, they have made the depositors whole. Um, share owners and bondholders, they're out. Okay, so, uh, and that's the way it should be. Uh, it's, you know, there's arguments about, well, is it a bailout or is it not? The FDIC handled it correctly to a certain extent. What happened is they did go beyond the $250,000 limit, you know, the insurance limit for depositors and made all depositors whole. But, you know, part of that too is um, you got to look at the size of the bank and, and there's a... There's a phrase that's um, used when you're talking about owing money. If you owe a bank a million dollars, they own you. But if you owe a bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank. So the size of this bank is a big factor because of the amounts of money involved in terms of how do you handle it to contain the damage as much as possible. So when you say shut down the bank, you mean like people weren't able to go to the ATM and pull funds out, correct? Exactly. 
And you see, what happened is they reached the point where they had no money. And here's why. Uh, and this, this is the first part, I guess, of that two-part thing that we, people need to understand if, if we can want to understand how does the bank get to this position, what actually happens. And we can talk more about it later, but simply uh, put, when you put, uh, when you deposit money in a bank, uh, and let's just call it, say, $10,000, the bank, at the end of the day, balances their total, takes a, a total on their deposits. Of that total on their deposits, they are required by federal regulation, it's a Federal Reserve regulation, Reg T, to maintain 10% of those deposits on hand in the event enough people want their money quickly. The other 90% they're allowed to lend out. Now that practice of going at fractional reserve banking is the, is the way the banks operate. The reserve requirement varies from time to time, but it's been 10% for quite a while. And I don't see that changing. Technically, what that means is if a bank falls below that 10% reserve ratio, they're in violation. They, you know, the, uh, the regulators would see that as a problem. They, they would call them insolvent. I would say they're insolvent anyway because they don't have enough money. Can you get it? If everyone wants or too many people want their money at one time, it's simply not there. All right. Now, what happened is you had uh, depositors associated with high tech and crypto and other things. But for whatever reason, they needed to pull money out. Okay, whether they, whatever it was, either they were having issues, uh, they wanted money. When they went to draw their money out, the bank, of course, complies with that until you reach the point where you've exhausted your reserves. Because once you do that, you're bankrupt. Okay, right. you don't have any more money. Um, what happened is in order to satisfy the depositors demands to draw their money out the bank also had to sell bonds that they held in their portfolio of reserves in other words they had huge amounts of cash as part of their reserves so they put it to work they would normally own treasury bonds but they also a couple of years ago bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities well interest rates have been going up and when interest rates go up, the value of bonds declines. And we'll talk about that later, but what they're doing is they were forced into selling assets on the books or, or money that, uh, bonds that they had at losses. Mm. So it's a combination of paying their the people they owed as well as selling assets at like fire sale prices in order to pay them on. So that is a combination of two things. Those two, that's what put them in the position of not being able to give any more money back where they'd be technically considered bankrupt.
so they they they've been operating like this for quite a while, right? I mean, this is nothing new. Well, so all banks operate under the same system. Right. Okay? Now we can argue that um and, and so in that sense, we can talk about reckless behavior, but sometimes it, it goes beyond that. Sometimes a bank will do something with its reserves that is reckless. Right. Okay. Or they will make loans that, you know, see, like I would say, okay, what, what's reckless behavior? How about uh, a 3% interest only mortgage to a night clerk at a 7-Eleven convenience store who's never owned a home and makes minimum wage? Right. You know? Okay. In other words, the qualifications financially simply weren't there. So, and it doesn't have to be that. So if you remember the, the what happened, you had auto loans, you had student loans, you had mortgages, all these things came into question. Well, that could cause problems for the banks. That could tip the scales. If you're only dealing with a, uh, operating on a 10% reserve requirement, doesn't take much to wipe that out. What what call, what was the initial catalyst to cause enough people to go to the bank and say, you know what, give me your money, give me my money? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know yet per se. I'm assuming part of this is when a bank, you you know, some of these people probably were on both sides of it. Some of them may have been um, banking with them. Others may have been lender uh borrowing from them and they may have been both and they may also know because quite frankly with what's happening the credit markets are in disarray it's very difficult you know what this does is it's it's tamping down liquidity so if you have to depend on the debt markets for your funding it's more expensive all the time and it's harder to get Gotcha. So there's any number of possibilities. Now let's just take it, take it, you know, uh, a little, another step further. If they were, if the depositors had problems of their own, that combined with the fact that assets of the bank are declining, is like, hey, you know, what can we do? <laughs> There's nothing else you can do. If, if enough people are unemployed and have to take their savings out to pay bills, if too many people, have, for whatever reason, have to get their money out from a bank, it's a problem. So then you have the ripple effect because you SVB, SVB Bank uh, was the second largest bank failure in history next to the Washington Mutual Savings Bank in 2008. So that size has implications. If you can't get your money, how do you pay your bills? And what happens to the people you owe money to? Right. And, you know, so people that are depending on these things uh, in various ways are sort of up a creek without a paddle. Um, so there is a ripple effect. And how far that extends depends on how limited 
the exposure was, but the size of the bank tells you it's much bigger than that. And with the attitude of investors today and uh, the overemphasis, I, I say that only to emphasize how far beyond uh, historically normal patterns we've gone in terms of assessing any type of investment, that the next big thing is always what's on the minds and lips of every investor. So the more risky, we don't think they don't think about it. Can I get the money? How cheaply? Boom. And the economy functions on credit. So anything that calls that into question is going to be a problem. Okay. It's, it's a big thing. It's a really big thing. And, Can they contain it? I don't know. And and what's interesting is I still don't feel like it's getting the amount of coverage that it really deserves. They don't want to. Right. Want I, that. They're, they're holding that back. I believe they're definitely holding that back. So, so they look, we know that they like to play word games up there in the fed. We know that they like to, to position everything like everything's all right, but this was a bailout, right? Despite what they want to call it. Uh, I would say yes, but it, if the, the bailout portion applies more to the fact that they, um, made depositors whole who had money there in excess of 250000 which was probably a goodly portion of the deposits. So in that sense, yes, because it, the FDIC are the ones that took it over and they should have only made whole those to 250000 And the next thing is that would have taken months if it was done that way. They made everybody whole as of today, that's what the announcement was. So otherwise they would not have gotten their money back and they would have continued to look for a suitor, somebody to come in and take it over and do it. So if you, even if you were under the 250,000 limit, you might've not gotten access to your money at this point. No. So that's, what I, you know, you could probably call it a bailout. Let me ask you this question real quick before we dive into those two subjects we really want to cover because it's the root of what's going on. But I heard something today that there was a British bank that had either bought them or were looking at buying them. Have you heard anything on that? I have not yet. I have not. Okay. All right. Good enough. As you can tell, it's still a very fluid situation out there. But regardless, it's important that we get on here and talk about this because I I feel like it's the first domino. And I think that's quite possible. Uh, we've been talking about that for several months. Um, we haven't had a, a real crisis since a pandemic, and that was more self-induced uh, than anything. So, you know, going back to 2008, uh, when things kind of imploded under their own weight, and that's kind of where we are. They built things back up to a point where sustaining it takes all their efforts just right. to sustain. So I'm sorry, I keep saying this. One last question before we dive in. I'm curious because they've made the discount window really easy to get to, right? right. And they've taken a bunch of limitations 
off of borrowing from from the discount window. Why didn't why didn't that bank just go to the discount window? The problem is with the discount window is that's supposed to help in marginal situations. Okay. Not it's not supposed to be a case of look, we're going under, give us a bunch of money because that's that's the whole reason for the FDIC and and the regulators you know, and the Fed once you reach that point. And part the other reason is there's a uh, there's a hesitancy or has been in pat in the past for banks to go to the discount window because as soon as they go to the discount window, the Fed knows they need money for to meet their reserve requirement. That's that's why there's an overnight market, Fed funds um, that banks you know borrow and lend from each other on an overnight basis, and and the discount rate. You can do the same thing, but you go directly to the Fed, but then the Fed realizes, uh-oh, if you're borrowing from us, we see that they may, it may, you know, they're afraid. It's like, well, we don't want to show our hand or we don't want them to know too soon. And maybe it's not that big of a problem, but then the Fed starts watching a little more closely. On the other hand, the Fed wanted to find a way to use the discount window to better facilitate their own efforts to encourage banks to lend more money and to not keep reserves on hand. And so they made it easier to borrow from the window directly. And they also uh, stopped paying the kind of rates that they were paying that would cause someone to simply say, well, I'm just, uh, a member bank to say, I'll just leave my funds on deposit with you. I'll ha I'll create excess reserves. You know, if you don't lend it all out to the to the uh temper down to the 10% ratio, anything else above 10% is considered excess reserves. And that could be on deposit with the Fed. You know, they have accounts there. So it's it's more it was more a matter of not wanting the Fed to see directly what they were doing. But I think we've reached a point now where uh, everybody's aware of that. And if, if it's an attractive enough rate and the banks feel good enough about it, they're going to borrow from them. Right. Whatever, because they can borrow. It doesn't have to be just to meet reserve requirements. Did, I thought the regulator's job, I thought this was part of the promise of the Fed, right? is that they were going to step in and make sure stuff like this doesn't happen. We have regulators. How did they manage to fly under the radar in such precarious position for so long? Because I can't imagine that one day they were fine and the next day they were broke, right? I mean, there's subtle steps in between. Yeah. Uh, um, again, I think this is part of the... Uh, uh, the banks create an appearance of doing very well. And if they are doing well, it's easy to present that aura, even if things start to turn. At this point, I think it's more a factor that the longer the Fed continued to raise rates, the sooner there was gonna be a problem because it's just a function of the fact that you're 
marking down assets continually because bond holdings uh, you know, are affected directly. So the higher interest rates drive, you know, the value of the bonds is declining. And as that happens, it makes everybody more vulnerable, regardless of the situation. If, you're, if your investments are continually going down and you depend on those investments for collateral or, or if you need to sell something and you're forced to sell it at a loss that you hadn't expected to, I mean, you know, you can't account for that until it happens. You know, right. it's, you can expect it, but sooner or later you, you realize, okay, I just don't have any money, but I didn't want to tell you because I thought so. And you just see the way everybody is. They're all, they're betting that the Fed's going to change, you know, this Fed pivot thing, the Federal Reserve reverse, they'll make, they'll not do this, they'll do this. And, and so nobody really thinks they know what's they and or they think they know but they don't you know and and so it's 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 really um it's a circus and it never really ends because everybody's playing a game right the fed's trying to keep the system together and the banks are trying to melt the system and so is the fed really i mean uh you know they're uh they can't control the effects of their own inflation we've reached a point where we're vulnerable you keep blowing up a balloon a little bit at a time the structure and the skin becomes more vulnerable you right from the outside just a tiny bit that little hole and the air comes out of it True. you can keep blowing the air in and eventually blow through it from the inside, big gaping hole. The point is at some point there is the piper to pay, you know, you, you can't get away from it. And and the um, we're, we're at a point now where all of these things that are happening are probably gonna have more of a detrimental effect initially than the Fed had hoped for when they started raising rates. So we have another new set of variables. Will they slow down? Will they stop raising rates? Or will they try to bring them down again in order to smooth things out? And that has its own set of uh, concerns and problems because you've now got people who are built into the expectation that rates are going to go higher. And so it can have an impact that way. But the other one is that um, they may go overboard trying to accommodate a situation that looks like it's about to run out of control, in which case they may end up doing something to really damage the dollar from this point uh because they would you know pull out all the stops you know the helicopter money ben bernanke referred to is a real possibility it'll be in digital form but you can just imagine regular monthly checks because it looks like we're going into a depression (sighs) and we've got to save people and you know and that would just they would be fighting the obvious 
And I think there's the potential that that tidal wave of default and deflation would overwhelm whatever efforts they they come up with, but they're still going to try. Right. Ooh, good times. So let's get into the two things we really wanted to break down that, that we felt were kind of, well, let me rephrase that. I'm not smart enough to feel or think anything here, but let's, let's call it, you know, what you felt were, were the two driving factors here. The first one was bond and interest rates. And we just covered a little bit of that. And then the second is fractional reserve banking. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is where if people understood these two issues, they would have a better grasp of what they're reading and hearing that a lot of the other stuff is designed to take the attention away from these particular issues. But these are the issues that affect all banks and not just banks, but, but definitely banks because of the reserve requirement. Uh, bonds and interest rates, you can see that structure anywhere once you understand that, what's going on. So let's, let's talk about um, bonds and interest rates. Whether you're a bank or not, We'll just say that, Dave, you want to buy a bond, corporate bond, treasury bond, doesn't matter. You've decided you want one and you're willing to pay. And there's one at face value, $10,000, and it's paying 3% interest. All right. And you go, great. I like that. I'm going to buy it. And so now you've got a bond, you pay 10,000, you're getting 3% interest, it's $300 a year on your money. A year from now, you find out interest rates have gone up. And we'll say that in the interim, they've risen to 5%. So gee, I'm only getting 3%. I'm gonna sell my bond and I'm gonna buy one and get 5% from it. Okay, now, if I want to buy a bond and I know interest rates are 5% right now, and you say, hey, I've got a bond, I'll sell you. And I, great, what's the interest rate? And you tell me 3%. I said, and you say, your plan is to go buy a bond and get 5%. I said, well, why would I give you 10,000 for your bond that's only paying 3% when interest rates have risen to 5%? Huh. So what has to happen is that the price of that bond has to be come down. And it does. As interest rates rise, that bond price drops. There is a correlation directly with interest rates. That bond has a price that when you want to sell it is now less than you paid for. Maybe it's instead of 10,000, uh, you're going to be able to sell it for 9,000. You've lost 10% of your money. Now, if you hold it to maturity, whenever that is, you still get your money back. But in the meantime, you have a market value that's adjusting always continuously to the changes in interest rates. So unless you're willing to hold it to maturity, you're going to have to take a loss when you sell it. Now that's true whether you're just an invest ordinary investor buying bonds in you know 
General Motors, corporate bonds, or, you know, it doesn't matter, U.S. Treasury bonds, any bond has a fixed coupon, an interest rate. And it's always based on $1,000 par value. So if you own bonds, you have what is called interest rate risk for your investment. If rates go up, the value of your bonds declines to meet the actual interest rate change that's out there. So what we're saying is at a cheaper price, your bond is the equivalent of earning the new 5% rate. If I give you only 9,000 or whatever that actual number, there's a formula that, and, and you, I pay 9,000, I'm getting 3% based on 10,000. So the 3% on 10 as a, a percentage of my 9,000 works out to be that higher interest rate. Okay, that's, that's what is actually happening. So, so there's always a risk. So that was happening if bonds, treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities, whatever it is, as rates continue to rise, you've got these bonds out there that are losing value. And, and, and a bank that's holding a bond portfolio is watching those assets decline. Mm. And they're declining. So they, SVB, was forced into selling because they needed to pay their depositors who wanted their money. Okay. That's okay. So it would be like you saying, okay, you come home and you tell your wife, um, I got laid off. We've got um money in the bank and we have some investments and we need to we'll sell them and you get to the point where you have to sell your investments because you've got to pay the bills and what happens when you go well i've got that those bonds in there you could have stocks that have dropped in price or you could have bonds that have dropped in price or whatever but the point is if you're forced to sell them at lower prices you're not really getting the money out of them that you expected or the growth that you had put it in there for originally. So you're forced, that's what they call forced selling. It's, it's not the strictest definition of it, but um, forced selling is what they do when you get a margin call. They just liquidate what you have on hand. But you are being forced to sell because of circumstances. That's my point here is what, what's your choice? You sell it at a loss because you need the money. You didn't want to, but you had to because you had those obligations. SVB Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, had to meet the depositors' demands for withdrawal. In order to do so, they had to sell bonds that were part of their reserves, their reserve portfolio. So they, because they had those bonds on the books at what they paid for them. Now they've taken a realized loss. Well, that money isn't there. So that's what tipped the scale. Okay. Two things real quick. Because I just want to make sure I understand it. Because like I said, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all this. You, for, you're, you're, you basically cash out those bonds that are worth less than what you bought for them. Because the cash on hand looks more appealing than holding on to the bond you're 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 basically like well 
how do we keep the doors open kind of a we, thing. We, we, well, yeah, they didn't have any choice. They had right. to sell if they were going to meet the depositors' demands. Now, and, and imagine yourself as like, if you had to sell something to meet the demands of creditors, you're doing that because you're trying to postpone what may be an inevitable event. But as soon as they had to do that, they realized there wasn't anything else they could do. And, right. and, and it tipped the scales. It was like, if we don't do this, we can't pay them. So it will show that, I mean, what, we, we, we say now, hey, we can't do this because we'd be forced to sell bonds at a loss. So, you know, you could be saying, okay, now, I, I want to contain the damage. I don't want too many people to know I'm in trouble. So I'll just keep selling things. And if I can get back on my feet here without people knowing about it, I can get, you know, either some help somewhere, get another job, find some depositors and, you know, whatever, whatever they needed. It was just a function of two things, the demand by depositors for their money for whatever reason doesn't matter. And in order to meet that demand, being forced to sell assets at a loss, bonds. And the, the bonds were down in price because they've held them for several years and they've been declining as interest rates continue to go up. Gotcha. Nope, that makes sense. Right. So and anybody then, with bonds, is that's the, a factor. Okay. And, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I read an article on CNN and I'm, I, I've got that and I'm going to throw that in the episode uh, notes as well as your three articles. But okay. it was an article by CNN that said that banks could be sitting on up to $620 billion of, um, how'd they put that? Un, unrealized losses. Debt. Unrealized losses. And that, that's, a, that's what we're talking about here. That, that relates bank, back to those bonds. Again, uh, who are the largest bondholders? Banks. Who owns the largest you know, amounts of treasury securities? I mean, in this issue, we're talking about banks. So let's face it. What would a bank put their money in? Bonds. Mostly it's treasury bonds, but it's still a bond. And the interest rates have gone up. And so over time, their bond portfolio declines. So any bank. So how many billions of dollars, how many trillion, you know, are in banks and how much money uh, is, is in bonds? It's, it's a big number. So I don't, you know, you could have told me a trillion and it wouldn't have phased me as far as how much money could be there and unrealized losses. Well, it's Just from CNN. Point. So it probably yeah. is closer to a trillion. Right. Yeah. So. Um, how there's, there's a couple other factors that are important here. The maturity of the bond is an issue. You go back to that bond you paid 10,000 for. If it was a one year bond, it doesn't matter. In maturity, you're still gonna get your money back, okay? If it was a five year bond, you gotta wait or you sell at a loss, but it's gonna be a much smaller loss than somebody who locked in that price for 20 years. Say, because the flux, you take that 2% differential between 3% and 5% as rates have gone up and you factor that in over the next 20 years, you can take some whopping losses on your bonds. 
So it depends on the maturity. Then you've also got default risk. Right. U.S. Treasury bond, you don't have that because they're going to come up with the money regardless of what they say. You know, they'll find a way to pay. But a company, a corporation can't do that. A corporation can't just turn right around and they can try to sell more bonds to pay you off. But if people want their money, uh, you know, that's that's the issue. So um, again, uh, if a corporation defaults, the bondholders lose their money. That's what mm -hmm. default risk is. Um, and so there's usually a factor built into the rate for that. But if it's a specific company or an industry, and those are the bonds you own, then you can add that to the interest rate risk because that affects the value as well, separate from interest rates. I mean, it'll show up in the interest rate, but it'll, it'll be a much greater interest rate than other comparable bonds, which aren't at risk. So... Now, it's important also to recognize that if rates go the other way, you bought that bond you bought, you paid 10,000, you're earning 3%, $300 a year, interest rates go up, or, excuse me, down. We did the up, so they go down, and now they're paying 2%, or 1.5%, and a year later, well, I'm not gonna get rid of this. Okay, why would you do that? Because the new rate's one and a half. But just the opposite thing happens. If you did decide to sell it, you would sell it at a premium because yeah. with rates at one and a half, you're getting three, the price would go up to compensate for that differential. Gotcha, gotcha. So you would, and, and that risk is always there. Anytime you hear someone say, yields went up or yields went down or bonds were up and, and bonds were down you need to know whether they're specifically saying bonds or yields most people read this and it just runs right through if they say yields on government securities increase today that means the price of the bond dropped oh okay okay because sometimes they'll present it in a way that sounds positive, but right. it's just the opposite effect. In light of, and, or they'll quote a negative statistic that has nothing to do with bonds and interest rates. And then they'll say, and the yield on treasury, 10 year treasury securities dropped. Gotcha. Well, that means the bond price went up. That's not a negative, you know, your bonds more, Bonds are more valuable, rates went down. So, um, but that's happening all the time. That's that's the way the bond market works. Okay. Always have a moving interest rate. So let, let me ask, because this this brings up two questions and it's, it's two that I hadn't thought of when we talked last. First is, is there a way that, that the average person, you know, just, got a little bit of savings putting away for 401ks you got a savings account right. is there a way for the average person to tell what banks may be over leveraged with bad bonds um 
I would say it's not so much the over leveraging of bad bonds. You want to know, are there banks that are flirting with danger in any sense? I mean, I don't care what they're doing if they're if they're un, if they're involved in investments. See, the bond issue wasn't the problem uh, in t- 2008. It was mortgages. Right. So what you really want to know, you can you can specifically look for yeah banks who have bond portfolios, and there are banking sources that will give you statistics, and even rate independently banks ones to watch out for, ones to check. And you can do that. Just go online. And I'd have to sit down and do a search because, and and I've done it in the past at different times, but there are ways to get information. And there's, you know, if you do it independently like that, you're probably going to get a more reliable number to base any judgments. Yeah. That was the other part of that first question is, is, are there sources that are more reliable than others? Um, because a lot of information you can get through the feds, you know, on their their various websites and, and uh, certain district banks have websites where they publish things. But I would just look to independent sources and okay. the banks will have financial statements. So, you know, if they're a public bank, if they're a public company, there's financial statements. Okay. Now I'm going to say something here or or ask a question because it occurred to me if because because in all actuality, even though it was a massive um, number as far as uh, SBB and and uh, and signature, it was still kind of a what would be considered a mid-sized bank, right? I mean, this isn't a national global bank. SVB was a big bank. It yeah. was a big bank. Okay. Definitely want to say they were a big bank because they were dealing, they were dealing with venture capitalists and the and the tech companies. This is big money. Okay. All right. So not it's not J.P. Morgan Chase or you know Wells Fargo, but it's still a very big bank, and they're very well spread into areas different areas and stuff okay i'm going to ask you a question here and you can just decline to answer this if you want but it's a thought that came to me as you were describing this could the interest rate hikes have been done twofold one to to slow down the economy slow down inflation but also to maybe get rid of banks that maybe you didn't want in the financial areas anymore I suppose it could. I don't know whether the the question would be why would SVB fit that profile though. Uh, I don't you know. know. I'm just I'm just throwing out throwing out ideas. May and and I don't know. Um, it, it just struck me as odd. Uh, the the question just popped up out of nowhere, so I wanted to ask. I, I think it's possible. Uh, and I'm not. I, I'm not saying SVB was the actual target, right? Necessarily, but like SVB and they just happened to be the one to pull the first winning Wonka ticket, so to speak. Well, you know, depends uh, on, depending on how far astray from the specifics in front of us, we want to move. We can always look at, uh, 
the possibility that um, the Fed already knows they don't have control over things. So maybe what they're trying to do is contain the potential damage in, in advance. Okay. All of this. No, okay. We're, we're, we know this is going to come down. We don't know exactly how it's all going to evolve, but if we don't do something that makes it look like we're trying to keep it together, we're all up a creek. And, and this is the problem with people's analysis of the Fed. They're convinced that the Fed is there for their benefit, to help them, to help them uh, to, to do what's right uh, financially and, and uh, help economically uh, with policies and everything else. Um, but it's a little more self-serving than that. Uh, you know, we've talked about it before, but uh, the Federal Reserve is a private institution. It was authorized by Congress, but it's a private institution and it is a banker's bank. And the way it operates is that it, the central bank provides an environment for member banks to create money in perpetuity through fractional reserve banking, which was the other thing that we want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and collect the interest. And they lend money to individuals, corporations, and government. And they continue to collect interest. See, and that's the key here. They create money. Right. The, the idea behind the origin of the Fed was let's, we need to get, a, it used to be a national bank. And then Andrew Jackson quashed that and said, we're not going to do that again. So the Fed came into existence under the guise of not being a national bank. Mm. and separating itself from the government as far as being private and that sort of thing. But there is you know, a, a bit of collusion, if you will, in order to get the charter or, or, or to be or in order for to get Congress to approve a central bank, they uh, convinced those at the time who were behind, uh, institutionalizing the Fed, Federal Reserve, had some meetings behind closed doors and right. government officials were promised that if the Fed were organized and approved by Congress, that the Fed would guarantee that the U.S. government never ran out of money. So regardless of the charade of issuing treasury bonds or whatever, you know, whatever we see happening, if there's ever any difference to make up, the Fed steps in. And if there's ever a case where there isn't enough money from those proceeds or anything else, the Fed is always there. And they are involved in the marketplace through the New York district, Fed district. Uh, at the district bank and and they uh, they buy and sell securities continuously, treasury bonds, 
Gotcha. But as of 2008, they're also involved in a lot of other bonds, um, right. which is a new thing. But if they if they hadn't done what they did, I'm not saying what they did was right, but if they hadn't done what they did in 2008, 2010, to go in into market and buy up all these bonds, we would have already been in a full-scale depression that was a collapse. They averted that, but question is, should they have been buying them? Because all they really did is, again, push things out and then inflate again, because the only reason it was a problem was because of overextended loans and, and cheap and easy credit to start with. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's why the Fed exists. They, they don't exist for our purpose. They exist for their own purpose. Now, yeah, they're the ones who are saying they're managing the money supply. All right. Uh, and yet there's an element that we have to recognize is they are fiercely um, cautious, if you will, about their independence. Because if people understood that independence and, and how far, how deep that goes in terms of who actually pulls the strings and makes the final decisions about policy, um, they would not be happy. <laughs> you know, right. it would be an issue. Regardless of that, if you take that whole conspiracy idea and set it aside, the Fed has always maintained that they are going to try to avoid recessions by managing the economic cycle. And that's why they're involved in the markets. But that's ridiculous to think that billions upon billions of decisions involving trillions and trillions of dollars can be managed by 12 men around a table. It just doesn't make sense, but they're trying to. That's what they say. Whether they are or not, that's what they're, they've said their purpose is is we're going to do these things and we're gonna make this this way. Obviously there is a motive there because as they create money, they lend it, people borrow, they spend more, they borrow more money, you know? So there's a cycle there that, that's good for the Fed and the banks. But thinking that, you know, again, if you set the cons any conspiracy ideas aside, um, the Fed hasn't done a very good job of managing things because it, uh, they're, a, first of all, they're the ones who create inflation. By, by expanding the supply of money and credit, they create the effects that we see in the terms of the loss in purchasing power of the US dollar and higher prices for goods and services. That's the result of the inflation that the Fed creates by expanding the supply of money. What, whether you think it's right or not, somebody can argue all day long that they need to do that, they have to do it, it, there's a purpose behind it. It doesn't matter. That's why inflation is what we have the problems that we do. It's cumulative, it's, it's unpredictable, and over time it becomes more volatile. Gotcha. And that's part of what we're seeing is you get to a point, it's like you don't have much room to maneuver when you first start out, you blow air into a balloon. There's a lot of empty space in there. Let some out, blow some in, let some out, blow more in. 
when you get it to the point where the balloon is extended, how much more air can you inject into it before it pops? Right. So, um, so you got to try to let some air out carefully. Right. So, no, so, that makes sense. So they're fighting their the effects of their own policies is what's happening now, <laughs> and they've done not a good job because the Fed caused the Great Depression, and they've admitted that. You know, it's in the records. You, you, they caused it. They didn't cause the crash, but they caused the depression. They caused, they created the conditions that led to the crash, and the conditions were what because the economy was already in a, a down cycle before the stock market crash in 1929. It's like a and fireman. Yeah, it's it's like a fireman who sets a fire to a house just so he can try to just put so he can out. come back on his truck and put it out yeah. yep <laughs> so where does fractional reserve banking fit in in all this all right that's our banking system and again that's what we talked about earlier um when you put your money in a bank the banks lend out as much as 90 percent they have required to keep 10 percent of all of the total deposits on hand now here's what happens that's just the first step. You go to your bank and put in $10,000. The bank says, this is over our excess reserves. We're going to loan out $9,000. They loan the $9,000 out. Okay. The person that gets the $9,000 says, uh, I'm going to use this money to buy a car. And do something else. I'll put some money in savings and I'll buy a new car. So they go and they put money down on a car and then they put uh, money in their bank. The bank they put their money in looks at it and said, hey, we got $5,000. We didn't have before. Our reserve requirements are met. We're going to loan out $4,500. Mm -hmm. Okay. The guy, the car dealer that got the money for a down payment, puts it in his bank. Bank says, hey, we got extra money here. Bank says, we can loan out 90% of that. We had, what, 4000 So we can lend out $3,600. So they lend that out. Now, what happens here is there's a multiple effect. And it works out to be roughly eight to 10 times, but there theoretically is no limit. The money supply continues to expand on its own because of fractional reserve banking. You go in cold to your bank and they know they've got their deposits, they've got their uh, on hand, they know what that total is and they've got their reserves and they have just enough money to loan you money based on their deposit. They really don't have that money. They're just going to create it. They're giving you a hundred because all those depositors can come in and get their money at any time. So the money you get is new money created out of, or by a pen stroke or a computer key. Wow. And it goes over and over again. 
Now, the problem is all the people who have money in the banks, their ongoing day-to-day bank activity varies from one to the next. Some need their money, part of it. Some need more of it. Some don't need it. And at some point, though, more people need it than normal, and they ask for it. Again, doesn't matter the reason. If you have too many people that want their money back too soon that exceed the reserves that are on hand, how do you pay them? See, right. Silicon Valley Bank tipped the scale. So we don't have it. After, at a certain point, this is all we have. So they ran out of their reserves, which means they were bankrupt. You know, they didn't have any more money. Liability exceeded the assets. And all banks operate like that. Yeah, that's the banking system. Fractional reserve banking. And, and uh, I, I got an article out. It's called Fractional Reserve Banking, the Elephant in the Room. Yep. And it goes through an example, several examples, really, that clearly show the problems with this system. And uh, every time there's a bank problem, regardless of what triggered it, it's people trying to get their money out. And the, and, and the reason they can't get it is because the bank doesn't have it. Again, it could be a rumor, it could be unsubstantiated, it doesn't matter. Either you have the money or you don't have the money. If you operate on a 10% reserve requirement, you don't have the money to pay your depositors if they want it at the same time or enough of them. We're not talking about all of them. Only a fraction of them have to want it, just enough to exceed your ability to pay them. So did we always operate with fractional reserve banking or is this just since the the inception of the Fed? Well, definitely since the inception of the Fed, yes. Okay. And uh, prior to that, once you go back to a certain point, you know, you people talk about the printing press, but that's the way governments operated. And the go government still inflated. They just printed money that they needed. If they didn't have it, they printed it. And usually, but remember all this came, there was, uh, there was a link between gold and the dollars. Right. And so there was a there was a restraint, if you will. And it caused problems for governments. Um, and it it probably uh, you know you, you want to think that maybe it reduced the possibility of governments getting involved in wars because they couldn't fund them. <laughs> Whereas if they had a printing press in their own currency, they would just print it, you know, do whatever they wanted. So um, anyway, the fractional reserve banking has been around. That's the way central banks operate. World Modern central banking is all on a fractional reserve basis. Nobody plays it close to the best. And, and the precedent for that goes back to when people use gold as money and the people that ran the warehouses would give out receipts that were negotiable for the gold 
which was their money. And then the banks decided, or not the banks, but the warehouses decided we should lend some of this gold out because everybody, they were just turning in receipts. They weren't coming and physically getting their gold. So if they lent out the gold at interest, they can make some money without, right. as long as more people didn't want their gold. Right. You know, and then it had evolved to the point where it became paper and now digital currency, but it's the same same principle. Fractional reserve now. So it's been around for quite a while. When you There's said there were some drawbacks to your money being tied to gold, the first for, one- For was, government. For yeah, government. For government, yeah. yeah. It's a restraint. It's a natural restraint. Right. When when you said that, the first thing I thought is, what kind of downside? Like, they can't spend like drunken sailors? No disrespect yeah. meant to drunken sailors no, anywhere. That's but... exactly the point. It restricts their ability to fund whatever amounts and numbers of, of social programs and everything else they think they're supposed to be involved in. And wars. <laughs> and, and see, I, I do remember from studying history that the original idea was is that there was no emergency spending unless it was in case of war yeah. right that was that was the original plan the only was, time you got to fire up those printing presses is when you thought they were going to light fire to your capital right that was it in american history and i find it interesting that oftentimes to this day when they need a huge influx of cash. Let's just go back to LBJ and the Great Society. It was called the War on Poverty, right? Mm -hmm. Or it was whatever else. And it makes you, and again, I know I'm jumping on the conspiracy train here, but it makes you wonder how often have we enacted war or military inter interventions that we later called wars as, for the reason of being able to fire up those presses. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I agree. There's uh and and or that it just the fact that we have that type of a system allows them to do that. You know, right. if they couldn't do it, you know, that that was governments were so happy to get off the gold standard after World War II because it was it's like, um, you know, all their motivations were put on hold. As long as you had a gold standard, they were limited. But that was the purpose. Right. The government was supposed to be limited. It was the people who were supposed to make the decisions that government was making. And once the, the government was freed from that, then all the political and uh, financial regulations increased. Let me ask you this real quick. The feds stepped in and at first they said, I shouldn't say they, we'll just name her. Janet Yellen says, we're not going to bail you out. Right. <laughs> that was a Friday. And then it only took till Sunday before she was like, on second thought, <laughs> you know, and then you can call it whatever you want. But in, in essence, it was a bailout. Right. And, and I want to be clear here. I'm glad that your normal run-of-the-mill depositor didn't get screwed, right? I'm 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 super happy with that. But it still remains that she did an about face way fast. 
And so do you have any ideas? Do you have any thoughts on why she pivoted as quick as she did? Because it doesn't necessarily send, send the message of, don't worry about this. This was an aberration. You know, because if you thought it was an aberration, you'd have thought, okay, doesn't need massive intervention. We can get through this pretty quick. So for her to make an about face that quickly, any ideas on on what it is she could have seen that would have caused her to to do that about face that quickly? I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier when we referred to uh, you can look at the numbers when you look at the the, the the size and the scope of the people involved who are affected by this where, okay, if these depositors aren't made whole, what's gonna be the impact? And then you're talking about, like I said, big money, not the guy who owes a few hundred thousand or a million, but large creditors or large depositors where the money is such that it's you're gonna make waves uh, if you don't do something like this. So I think it was more a matter of that. It wasn't like uh, uh, billions of dollars, a few thousand at a time. <laughs> right. Large concentrations of money, just huge numbers that would affect a, a wide, much wider spread that would go out from that. And the threat that what to whatever extent that wasn't controlled, not just that, but how it could, it could be played from there, you know, expanded that you could have more contingencies than you could even imagine. So uh, it, it was just too big to make that kind of a statement which means they were too big to let it go under. Now, the share the private owners, no, the share the stock uh, pri- shareholders and the bondholders, they lost their investment. Okay. Which which should have been, right? Because they were yeah, the Absolutely, that's the way it is. That's a, yep. Yep. it's definitely. But um so I I think, you know, initially Janet Yellen was playing the game as she knows it's supposed to be played and she's still doing that. She just modified her references once they got together and talked and realized that we can't really let this go because it could bring the whole house of cards down or something like that, you know. It was big enough to worry them. That's, that's definitely a factor. Any inclination on whether you think they can actually contain contain to this? Um, I know contagion has been a word that's been thrown around a lot on this. Yeah, I, I you know I looked that word up again last night when I was writing an article, and I'm like, yeah, it, the potential is there, okay, because uh, of the size and the scope and the position we're in. We're more vulnerable right now because of what has happened over the last couple of years. I know the credit markets 
are very vulnerable. They were on a razor's edge before. You've got banks on a 10% reserve ratio. So there isn't a whole lot of wiggle room to absorb and, and, and contain damage. So it, it's, um, I think we're at a point where, yeah, it could. I felt that way before. The problem is I've seen it too often where, I mean, when I think back at 2008 and I'm just like, oh, how did we ever get out of that? You know, the way we did, how could, how could people turn on a dime like that? and uh, buy into all that and, and accept it. Now, the economy didn't get moving that quickly and that was a big concern, but they, they kept the system from imploding because the Fed jumped in and started buying bonds in the open market. That's what saved the bond market, is the Fed's purchase of bonds. And, uh, and then, of course, expanding the credit and getting people to borrow and everything else. But all that did is just, you know, it it pushed off and grew the potential downside, you know, well in advance. Uh, if you don't, you have to take the time to get better, or you'll get sick again. And nobody wants to it's not that the fed tries to put it off but you know governments they don't want to hear that people don't want to say okay you mean i how sick am i what right. isn't there something else i can do you know well that's the way they treat themselves medically what would you expect financially they're worse you can't tell this people they believe everything they're told now we got to a point where you know, you tell the ordinary citizen, we are going to have to go through a full-scale depression in order to get better. It's and, and whether we get better or not, we're still going to have one because right. that's the end result of all this. What? Why? Can't they do something? They've been doing something for a hundred years. You just didn't know it. And right. that's why we're in this fix. This next, what, what I'm going to say next here, I want to make damn sure everyone out there listening is me. This is me. Um, this is not anything Kelsey has said or anything else, but it's what I feel in my, in my core. This is the first in what will be a long series of cataclysmic changes to the economy. Prepare and prepare and prepare. Get your lifeboat together. Get food in your house. Get your reserves on hand. Do whatever it is you need to do to get ready. Go see Marcelo down at food storage prep in South Jordan, Utah. I had him on the podcast. He he told you what what hyperinflation looks like. He told you what depression looks like. Start reading your grandparents' journals and figuring out how you how they got through it. It is coming. It there's no look, whether it happens today, tomorrow, a year from now, 10 years from now, 
depression is the natural result of what we have been doing. And as I said at the beginning, I questioned, you know, maybe I didn't know as much as I thought I knew about economy. And I'm, I'm not saying I still know a lot about the economy, but I know enough that you can't continue to print money and have it turn out good in the end. It just does not work in a capitalist system. And we still do have a remnants of a capitalist system. I'd make an argument we haven't practiced true capitalism in about 100 years. But there's enough there that that it, it will still have the same result in printing all that money. The other thing I'm going to say. Take what the experts say with a great big grain of salt. Go back to Hurricane Katrina. They told everybody, get to the Superdome. And everyone went. And the horror show that happened after that was so bad that the Saints owner, Mickey Loomis, called in a priest to basically exercise the whole Superdome. Rapes, murders, beatings, whatever. But people listened to the experts. The same people who created this mess are the ones trying to tell you that there's nothing to see and to move along. And maybe I'm wrong. If the Spirit is telling you something different, go with that. But if the Spirit is telling you something is wrong, listen to that and then prepare. Because it's, it's as sure as I know gravity works, at some point, this all comes due. We can't keep kicking the can down the road. And we've done that for a long time. In my lifetime, since the dot-com bubble burst, we have just kicked the can down the road and we have exacerbated the problem to the point now where I believe this next collapse will be biblical in nature. Please, please, please prepare. Now, Kelsey, if you think I was hyperbolic there, if you think I was off base somewhere, please push back on me on that. Uh, I don't feel that at all. I, I, like I said before, I, I feel that things are out of control uh, in terms of being able to manage it very well and have been for quite a while. And it's just a matter of time, but we're probably much closer to this point uh, than farther away from it. And, and again, when you remember that the effects of inflation are cumulative and unpredictable, as well as becoming more volatile, every time there's a crisis event, it's worse than the last one. And it will be more and more difficult to sweep it under the rug. So I, and I agree with you. It, the one, one thing that definitely is clear is whether it happens next month or next year or whatever, um, it could very well happen tomorrow versus a year or two from now, but it will be that much harder to come out of it because once it does occur, we will probably stay there for a decade or two. Oh. We have thoughts that it will ever get better you know 
I remember when 08 happened. Um, I had a lot of free time on my hands, so I read a lot about economy. And I remember when I read my, the last book on it, and I just kind of shut the book, I remember thinking, I am more scared of the Fed's response than I am to the crisis itself. And I think because we've kicked the can down the road so long, that's why it's going to be a decade or two, I think, of of devastation. I don't know how else to put it. I know I keep using words like that, and, and I'm trying to be measured, but it's really what I feel at my core. And if I'm wrong, you'll never meet a man who's going to be happier to be wrong than I will be. Well, um, you, you, what you said there about um, the response of the Fed and the government is exactly the unknown and the bigger vulnerability we have, because that's the reason the depression lasted as long as it did, because the government resisted the economy's effort to cleanse itself. And if they had let that run, instead of trying to fight it, it would have worked itself out much better. So the response, historically speaking, tends to be that whatever the problem is, it will be worse and last longer because of interference and intervention by the Federal Reserve and the government. What scares me the most on this is, is that really the only way I could see out of this is another horror show, right? Which is a digital dollar. Right. Yeah. A currency, a, of, a currency, a currency, yeah. yeah, a currency reset. But in, in doing just a little bit of research, every time that's been done in any other part of the world, you can bank on the dollar you have now being 40% of its value before the reset. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's so many speculations about these things and, on a functional basis, they don't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, one thing is that currently we do have a relatively stronger dollar. I, I, and I'm not talking about where it is over the last hundred years, but um, the another thing is that regardless of that, what are you gonna do? You're still coming to people and saying, here's something that's worth something that has no value. Right. And it's better than what we did have, which used to have value, but doesn't now. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what's the difference? What, what do I can't now? There's a difference between accepting that and being forced to accept it. Right. Okay. So we don't know how that's going to play out. You know, we don't know what specifics there would be and what uh, we would be asked to do in order to save our economy. Uh, but um, they're going to they're gonna do something. Now, again, if the dollar is an issue, or maybe they just have a plan that they feel is going to give them more control, and finding a way to put it in place is the issue, not so much that they have to come up with an alternative. Right. You know, it's more a concern of 
how can we get this in place? And uh, well, let's you know manufacture an event. Let's create a problem. And and there is some historical precedent for some intervention there. Um, you know, there's there's some financial and economic events that it's kind of funny how the drawing plans were on the board before the event for the solution to the problem that occurred. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll have to see. Awesome. But, Kelsey, dude, I appreciate it so much. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we wrapped up? No, I think that's good. I think we uh, we covered the things we wanted to. I feel pretty good about it. Fantastic. Well, dude, I have a feeling that uh, not you're already in my contacts list, but I have a feeling that that we're going to be talking a lot more in the coming weeks. Appreciate right. it very much. I look forward to it. All right. Bye, everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.